Well, let's pray one more time. Father God, be our teacher. Uh, challenge us, God. Uh, may the clarity of your word pierce through the, the veneer uh, of our hearts. We often th- times, Lord, have things that prevent us uh, from hearing from you, whether that's stuff we're contemplating or fears that we hold on to or just things that keep our focus off of you. And we pray that this morning, God, uh, you would speak to us. We would hear clearly from you. And we ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, our King. Amen. We have been in a series asking the question, how big is your God? And I have been saying that how you answer that question has all kinds of implications, all kinds of ramifications for our lives. If you live life thinking that you have a small God, you will likely live a life full of fear, anxiety, worry, perhaps even little purpose, because you don't understand that a great big God calls you to live life. And when I say live life, I mean fight life's battles, trusting him, following him, honoring him. And as you do that, this great big God goes with you. He never leaves you. He never forsakes you. In fact, he promises to give you power. He promises to give you courage. He promises to give you everything you need to be a success. Success defined as living a life that honors God. One of the things that you and I need to honor God is we need wisdom. And what I want to do in this message is to look at the subject of the wisdom of God. God's wisdom is always bigger than our confusion. Always. We'll see that. And before we get started, I want to give you a couple of warnings about this message. The first would be this. In order to appreciate and understand the passage that we're going to look at, we're going to have to wade through some historical material. Some of you love doing that. Others of you hate doing that. You're all going to have to hang with me to kind of get at the depth of the meaning of the passage we're going to look at. We'll need this background information. So put on your learning cap, so to speak, and go to school with me, would you? Okay. Now, over the last couple of weeks, we have talked about how big God is. We studied the passage on Gideon and saw that God is bigger than our challenges, even when those challenges are numerous. Last week, we looked at the life of Deborah in the book of Judges. And there we talked about the fact that God is big enough to work through and even use our weaknesses to accomplish great things. And those messages, I think, from the feedback I received from many of you were encouraging and helpful. And uh, I really am thankful to God that that was the case. So here's my warning this morning. This message this morning is not encouraging. It's kind of insulting. Okay, are you excited? It's going to insult our pride if you're listening, if you're digesting this. It's going to challenge our self-sufficiency. It's going to call into question some of the arrogance that we sometimes have when we think that we can navigate life, live life, and do it largely, mostly, sometimes completely without God. So just a warning ahead of time. If you stay with me during this entire sermon, you are likely to feel a little bit insulted and you'll feel like you've had a history lesson. Are we excited about this message? (laughs) Well, here's where we're gonna start. 
We're going to start by reading the words given to the people of Israel in the book of Deuteronomy. These words were considered to be some of the most important words in all of scripture by devout Jews. And uh, we'll talk about why in a moment. This is called the Shema. Some of you have heard of that before. And I want you to read it with me. Now, ordinarily, what you would do in the context of Jewish worship, when these words were going to be spoken or read, you would stand. We're way too old and feeble and tired. And some of you have already complained uh, that we've been standing too much. So we're going to let you be seated. But here's the deal. If I perceive that you're not reading this with gusto or intentionality, uh, paying attention, I'll just stop it and I'll make you stand, okay? So there's another warning for you. So read this like you're standing. Here we go. We're gonna read together Deuteronomy chapter six, verses four through nine. This is a part, this is a portion of what we call the Shema. Here we go, read together. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, and when you lie down, when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands. Bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. This is the word of God. This text, these words that we just read, were referred to by devout Israelites as the Shema. This was the central text for all Israel. The first Hebrew word that we read, the word here is the Hebrew word Shema. The Israelites believed that wisdom begins here. It begins with listening to God, practicing a rhythm of listening to God, loving God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. And the way that you express your love for God, according to this text is you listen to what God has to say to you. And then you do what God tells you to do. That's doing Torah. That's doing the law. That's taking in the teaching and the commandments and making them something that's on or in your heart. And then you take what is in your heart and you teach it to your children. And you strap these things on your hands and on your forehead and you write them on your door frames of your home and on the gates of your home. You give uh, these things the attention that they deserve. And this is what it means to a devout Jew to passionately passionately follow God is you take the Shema and you implant it on your heart. Now, as soon as you were a boy, as soon as you were able to speak roughly about 10 years after a girl of your age, uh, the, your father would teach a little boy the Shema if you were in a devout Israelite household. Uh, in fact, Deuteronomy 6.4 is almost certainly the first passage that Jesus would have ever memorized as a little boy. And uh, when the Shema... Uh, says that you are to love God with all your soul. Understand, the rabbis understood this to mean that you should be willing to die rather than betray God. That's what it meant for them to say, love God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength. And this is why of all ancient peoples, Israel alone would choose to be executed 
rather than convert to another religion or follow another God. Everybody else in the ancient world served little tribal gods. And we've talked about this. Gods that controlled the harvest or gods that controlled fertility or gods that would control your health or assist you in battle. These were local tribal gods looking out for their local tribal territory. So if you moved into a new place, you just started to worship the local gods, the tribal gods. But the curious thing was, devout Israelites would not do that. Uh, a faithful Israelite would rather die first. And uh, we know from history that when a Jewish martyr was about to die, he or she would often die quoting the Shema, the words we read a moment ago. Israel believed that this command, this Shema said something wonderful about God. It said that God, in fact, wants to be loved. Uh, just think about that for a moment. There is a God who wants to be loved, wants you to love him and wants to love you. Right here in the Shema, it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That's a big declaration. That's saying that our God is a big God, not a tribal God, not a local God. He is the one God who made all things. He is the one God who sustains all things. He is the one God who keeps moving human history towards a purposeful direction. There is only one God who does all of this, not a host of competing tribal gods, small gods. Nobody else believed in a God like that. And this God wants to be loved. That's shocking. That's culturally shocking. Uh, people understood back then that you should fear the gods. Absolutely, you should fear the gods because all the gods in the ancient world, they were, they were capricious. They were demanding. They could be petty. They could be moody. They could be temperamental. Sometimes you wanted the help of the gods and so you would offer them sacrifice. Other times you just wanted them to leave you alone. And so you would make an offering to them. But this God, Israel's God, Yahweh, Jehovah, this God wants a relationship with you. He wants to be loved and he loves you. He says so in the Shema. Uh, what Israel considers the full text of the Shema are actually three different passages. The passage we read, Deuteronomy 4 through 9, and then again in Deuteronomy 11, some verses there, and then also in Numbers 15, some verses in that chapter. And in that second section of the Shema, we read these words. Be careful or you will be enticed to turn away and worship other gods and bow down to them. And then the Lord's anger will burn against you. That's a warning. The one God won't like it if you give pieces of your heart or your heart to other gods. This is a jealous God in the best sense you can imagine. You know, it's a vulnerable thing uh, to want to be loved and to say to someone else, I love you. Uh, when I was dating Holly in college, few years back, I became aware that uh, there were other guys kind of uh, catching her notice. These were good looking guys. These were smart guys. I hated these guys. Uh, and she was dating some of these guys, even as we were dating. And we finally got to a point in our relationship where, you know, I ventured into those waters where I said, Holly, I really really like you. I wanted to say love, but I wasn't sure what the response would be uh, that I would get back. And you know, I remember when I made that declaration to her that I really, really liked her. That did not impress her very much. 
What I was wanting to say, what I was trying to say, what I needed to say was, you know, thou shalt have no other guys before me, please, please. I mean, I, I want your heart because you've got mine, you see. I know you have other relationships, people you love. That's normal. That's, that's like all of us. That's all fine. But when it comes to deep, personal, intimate relationship, I would like to have exclusive rights to your heart. That's what I wanted to say. That's not what I said. I was too big a chicken. But I wanted her to love me and only me. That's the point, really, of the Shema. That's the spirit of it. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, not, not pieces or parts of it. Love him with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. And here's the thing. In the Shema, in the Torah, God actually gives us instruction on how to do that. Um, he gives us wisdom, if you will, for living life. It's not dead rules. It's wisdom for how to relate to each other and most importantly, how to relate to him. This unique God, the one God the God who loves us. These commandments, he says, that I give you today are to be on your hearts and impress them on your children. Uh, in these commandments, we find the way. In these commandments, we find the truth. In these commandments, we discover life itself. Now, interestingly, other gods, ancient gods were ethically challenged to say the least. Uh, the gods of Mesopotamia were largely the same gods of the Greek, earlier Greek nations. They had really crummy things that they could do to you and would do to you. They could deceive you. Uh, they could trick you. They could use you. They could kill you. They certainly didn't love you. Maybe they were fond of you for a little while, uh, you could argue. But, but these things are not true of Israel's God. Israel's God is the one true God. Israel's God is the God who is good. Israel's God is the God who says he loves you. And in him, things like ethics and justice and spirituality, all those things coalesce. They come together. They're a piece of each other. Now, every devout Jewish person, particularly the men, but this could also be true of the women, every devout Jewish person would recite the Shema twice a day. Now, as I read, the Shema consists of three different texts from the Old Testament. Uh, the third text, that passage in Numbers, or Numbers 15, contains the command to do some odd things. At least it seems odd to us. The wearing of tassels, for example. In fact, we read that passage and it says this. Speak to the Israelites and say to them, throughout the generations to come, you are to make tassels on the corners of your garments with a blue cord on each tassel. Now, that's totally weird. You know, if we stop right there, why? What's the point of this? Uh, what's the requirement of the garment? Why, why would you ask us to do such a silly thing? You will have these tassels to look at. And so you will remember all the commands of the Lord that you may obey them and not prostitute yourself by chasing after the lusts of your own hearts and eyes, going after other gods, you see. Now, the way that devout Jewish men sought to obey these commands uh, and to do, they, they in fact do this uh, in Orthodox Jewish communities, still today, they would wear a prayer shawl. Women actually had longer garments and, and uh, it was easy for them to have tassels at the base of their garments. Men would have a prayer shawl. Twice a day, they would recite the Shema. 
Uh, They got that practice from Deuteronomy chapter six, verse seven, where it says that you should rehearse these truths when you lie down and when you get up twice a day. So first thing in the morning, the Jewish man would put on his prayer shawl and it would be, uh, it would have these blue and white tassels on the corners to remind him of God's commandments, God's direction, God's wisdom. And then he would place on his body the tephilim. These were the boxes with commandments, scripture written on little pieces of parchment, pieces of paper inside the tephilim, inside the boxes. This would be pieces of the Shema. And they would strap the tefillin to their arms. Uh, this, again, is still done in observant uh, Orthodox Jewish families today. And they would bind these things on their forehead. This was a way, you understand, of saying to God, God, may my hands do your work and not foolish things. It was a way of saying, God, may my mind be guided by your truth. May my mind honor and glorify you with the thoughts that I have as opposed to being filled with foolish thoughts. And then they would, of course, recite the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. Do you see that really all of this that we've described so far, what this was for for Israel, these were wisdom exercises. You could call them spiritual disciplines if you want. Uh, Every day, twice a day, offering their heart, offering their soul, orienting their passions toward God. In Israel, wisdom was not just about making smart career choices. It wasn't about making money or building the right house or living in the right place or relating to the right people or gaining power or marrying the right. I mean, all those things are fine, but that's not what life was supposed to be about. It was supposed to be about something bigger. You see, the truth is you could do all of those things right. You could get all of the stuff you think you want to get and your life could still be wasted if you're not doing those things for God and with God. That was really the difference. Because you see, wisdom does not start with that kind of stuff. Career choices, buying or building the right home, knowing the right people and things of that nature. Wisdom does not start with that stuff. It starts with things like, Who will I serve today? Who will I love today? Who will I give honor to today? Who will I trust today as I confront the things that are going to come into my life? You see, from morning till evening, answering those questions well is the key to living wisely. And so question. Why do you do the things you do from morning to evening? What fills your thoughts from morning to evening? I mean, is it loving God? Is it serving God? Is it trusting him? Is it following him? Is it orienting your actions in such a way that you're reasonably sure you're honoring him by what you do? Do your thoughts morning and evening have anything at all to do with God? That's a loaded question. You know, I'm a pastor. Of course, my thoughts from morning till evening are filled with nothing but God. (laughs) Right, honey? (laughs) Yeah, I write sermons and stuff. That's really all I do. I just write sermons, nothing else. You would think that 
My life would just be filled with glorious thoughts of God. I wrestle with this every day, all day long. Will I live wisely, choose wisely, do wisely? Or will I just do what I want to do? And I'm just guessing that if I wrestle with this, you do too. It's a loaded question. Do your thoughts, do your actions, morning to evening, have anything to do with God at all? The whole point of learning to live wisely means that everything you do morning to evening has something to do with God. In Israel, they were very passionate about loving God. They wanted God to have the first thoughts of the day. So at first light, the saying of the Shema would begin. Shema was a practice that they had. It was so important to them, in fact, uh, that if they were on the road, if they happen to be traveling and it's early and they're saying the Shema, the rabbi said this, that as you travel, if you come across the path of a friend, do not interrupt the saying of Shema. Complete the saying of Shema before you have conversation with someone else. It needed to be first and foremost. It would lay the foundation for other things you would say and other things you would do that day. If on the other hand, you came across a dangerous person, like a Roman soldier, for example. You then were allowed to interrupt the saying of Shema, according to the rabbis. Otherwise, you were not to interrupt the saying of the Shema. Saying Shema was the expression of devotion to God. It was the orienting of your life that day to God. It was about the only thing, or about the only thing that was allowed to get in the way of your saying Shema was death or danger. Those two things. That's how important this was to them. In the Mishnah, which is a group of interpretations of the law uh, put together by the rabbis, written by the rabbis over the century. In the Mishnah, it says this, and I quote, he whose dead relative lies before him is exempt from reciting Shema and from wearing tefillin. They're assuming the grief is so great, you're just not able to go there. But understand, danger and death the only two excuses for not starting your day, orienting your day around wisdom, around Torah, around serving God, around honoring God. Same thing can be said at night. Now, the obvious question is, why did they love these words so much? What was the big deal? Why, why reciting these words the way they did? I mean, we don't do this kind of thing. It kind of sounds crazy, wearing little boxes on your forehead, wearing these things on your hands. And so the answer, I think, is this. It's it's not difficult to figure out. The reason they did these things is because they found in these words the answers they were looking for to the great questions of life. One of the problems that we have today is we really only have one great question in life. And that's how can I be happy? The trouble with that question is it's the wrong question. It's your life is not about you being happy, not simply being happy. It's about so much more. There are ways to be happy. Wisdom will lead you in a path of happiness, ultimately. But, oh, that's not the sole question. I think the, uh, the Israelites found in the saying of the Shema answers to questions, bigger questions like, who made me? Why in the world am I here? What am I supposed to do with my life and my time and my relationships and my money? What should I do with this? How do I make wise choices? What is good versus what is bad? There are differences of opinion about this. And these words, of course, declared loudly, boldly, solidly every morning and every evening, there is one God. 
one big God. A God who wants to be loved, wants relationship with you. He is good. He is wise. He is true. He has revealed himself to us. And this is where we find wisdom, wisdom for living. So this one great big God is really the embodiment of wisdom. How many of you have ever known somebody who's just really, 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 really super smart you know, they, they got super high IQ. They got SAT scores, you know, off the charts. And, you know, they go to schools like Harvard and Yale and Princeton and Covenant College. And uh, when it comes, however, when it comes, however, to handling life, stuff that confronts us every day, anger issues, navigating relationships, governing our, our impulses. I want this, I want that, managing our finances. How many of you ever know somebody who's super smart, but when it comes to handling those kinds of things, they weren't necessarily displaying their smartness. You ever known anybody like that? You ever? Yeah. Are you sitting next to somebody like that? Yeah. How many of you have ever seen a really smart person do some really dumb things? Anybody, anybody ever seen that? Nobody. Oh, a few of you. Okay. Okay. Well, there's a story I like. It's, a, it's an old joke, but it makes the point well. So I'm going to share it with you. There was an airplane one time, had three passengers on it, had a pilot, uh, had a Boy Scout, and it had the smartest man in the world. Highest IQ ever. Nobody smarter than this person. The plane develops engine problems. It becomes clear the plane is going to go down. There's a problem. There's only two parachutes. And so the world's smartest man grabs one of those parachutes. He's figured out very quickly what's going to happen here. And he says to the pilot and he says to the Boy Scout, hey, I'm sorry, but I am the world's smartest man. The world needs my brain, my IQ. And so, you know, I've got to take this. I've got to save myself. And boom, he's out of the plane. The pilot then turns to the Boy Scout and says, you know, I'm so much older than you. I've lived a good life. I, my life has been full. I want you you're young, your whole life is in front of you. you. You take the parachute, I will go down with the plane. The Boy Scout says, you can relax, sir. The world's smartest man just jumped out of the plane with my backpack. <laughs> now understand, that is the kind of world we live in. Really smart people jumping out of planes holding on to backpacks that they think are parachutes. Happens all the time. It happens all the time. Really smart people doing really dumb things. And the point is this, it's really easy to be really smart and live your life with really no wisdom at all. Am I right? Isn't that true? Now, let me also say that this is why Israel loves Shema and the repeating of the Shema. And here's where the message of scripture does get kind of offensive if you understand it, if you digest it. This is where it gets a little insulting to really smart people like us, right? Because you see the conventional wisdom of our day when it comes to values, when it comes to what matters, when it comes to what gives meaning and goodness and things of that nature, the conventional wisdom says it's really all just about making you happy. That's the point of it all, right? And therefore you really are on your own 
because you're the only one who ultimately cares just about your happiness. And so you've got to think for yourself. You've got to take care of yourself. You've got to advance yourself. You've got to figure out what your priorities are so that you can be happy. That's the conventional wisdom of our day, friends. That's what really smart people think. Now, uh, in case you doubt me, some years ago, the president of Yale University was welcoming the incoming freshman class. These are the words he used to welcome that incoming freshman class. Now contrast these words with the Shema. One God, this God loves you, wants a relationship with you, right? Pass this on to your children. These are the words of this Yale uh, president. He said, and I quote, We cannot supply you with a philosophy of education any more than we can supply you with a philosophy of life. This has got to come from you, from your own active learning, your own choices, your own decisions. Think for yourself, he said. Now, that sounds good on the surface. Think for yourself, you know, figure it out. That's great and all. But if you dig a little deeper, that's that's really devoid of any helpful learning, any helpful wisdom. Here's the president of Yale University, originally a congregationalist seminary, by the way. Yale was begun by a group of people that wanted more than anything else for an institution to pass on values, pass on truth, help people discover wisdom. Now the president is saying in essence, hey, you know what, when it comes to history, If you say the United States was formed in 1675, we will impose our beliefs on you because we believe we know some truth about that. Or when it comes to physics, if you say E equals MC cubed, we will impose our beliefs on you about that because we think we know some truth about that. But when it comes to wisdom, when it comes to how to live your life, when it comes to goodness and deciding what's really good and what's not, when it comes to figuring out a purpose for your life, figuring out right and wrong, when it comes to you figuring out gender issues and concerns and questions or your own sexuality, good luck. You are on your own. Think for yourself. The point is this, the university, most universities, have absolutely no clue what you are supposed to be doing here on this planet. Not anymore. They really don't. Doesn't mean they're not smart. They can be very smart, great places to learn, lots of great things. But in terms of helping you know what your life is about and where it needs to go, they're clueless. It's essentially a smorgasbord of uh, professors and and courses, uh, just a great buffet line, if you will, of contradictory ideas, contradictory philosophies, contradictory values and ethics. You get the idea that I'm against higher education. That's not the case. But if you go into higher education, it's good to have some of these things nailed down. What is my purpose? Who am I? Who made me? Why am I here? Before you ever get into these places of learning. And uh, they would just say at many of these places of learning, you just need to choose this stuff, make this stuff up for yourself, whatever you come up with, good luck, you know. Now, whether any of that adds up to something called wisdom, who knows, who knows? And oh yeah, by the way, if you go to to Yale, it's gonna cost you about 160,000 to $200,000 by the time you get out. And um, I hope it's worth it. I hope it's worth it. By the way, here's a question. How is the world doing so far thinking for itself? Do you know that 91, this is a a survey taken not that long ago of a large number of people. 
and they, these are the results they got back. 91% of us, people surveyed, say that we lie routinely. 91, so if it's in my best interest, if I perceive it's in my best, I'm just gonna lie to you, 91% of us. You know that 31% of married couples in this survey admit that, uh, to having an affair that has lasted for more than a year? That's almost one out of three. Wow. Turn the news on. Woo, I mean, you know the list. Murders, child molestation, government corruption, terrorists blowing things up, governments blowing things up, substance abuse, sexual abuse, wars, disease, injustice, corporate greed. I'll tell you, thinking for ourselves seems to lead to all kinds of problems. And here's the thing, that's not news. That's the way it's always been. Since I'll just think for myself, I'll come up with my own values, my own priorities, my own routines, my own rhythms, all of which I think will make me happy, you see. You see, the people of Israel could not have had a more counter-cultural, insulting message. You wanna think for yourself? Go ahead. See if that leads you to a place of wisdom. You know, the Shema says this. The Shema says, there is one God who understands it all, who puts it all in place, who sustains it all, oversees it all. And this one God wants a relationship with you, invites you to know him. And this one God says he loves you. And this one God will give you a purpose that is bigger than you just satisfying yourself or making yourself happy. Now in the process, living a, a life that's wise, I believe we do find happiness, but not by pursuing just our happiness. Uh, the Shema, you know, it starts with this word here. <laughs> There's the key. There's the clue. Listen is what it's saying. It does not say, you know, Hero Israel, think for yourselves. It doesn't say, Hero Israel, you're on your own. It doesn't say, Hero Israel, do whatever you think will make you happy. It doesn't say, Hero Israel, each man, each woman for themselves. You are the autonomous center of the universe. What it says is, Hear, O Israel. In other words, listen. Be still. Be quiet. There is a God who wants to talk to you. There is a God who loves you. And so receive the Torah, receive the law, receive the wisdom that he has for you so that you can be wise. And uh, to the Israelite, this was not a, some set of legal propositions. Life is messier than that. There's not rules to tell you what to do in every situation. It's more about relationship than it is about rules. Having a relationship with God where you learn to listen to him so that in the, in the mess and the trenches of life, you actually have wisdom. You've learned wisdom. You've learned to apply his truth in a variety of circumstances. And I would just say to you, you know, miss everything, but don't miss this. You see, God's wisdom, God's law, you wanna understand why these Israelites did such weird things like strap it on their arms, put it on their foreheads, put it on the door of their house, put it on the gates to their, their home because they valued the wisdom of God. They came to understand that there was wisdom out there that wasn't in here. Wisdom worth getting, wisdom worth following, wisdom worth dying for. And because of that, 
They embraced the truth that said, love God with everything you are. Wisdom starts there. Love God with everything you have. It's the same thing that Jesus taught. You know, one day this rabbi shows up, his name is Jesus. And this rabbi said the most incredible things to devout Jewish audiences. One time he said, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. Understand eternal life is not in the scriptures. It's not found in the scriptures. It's found in who the scriptures talk about, right? It's found in who the Shema talks about, not in the Shema itself. Jesus went on to say, these are the very scriptures that testify about me. And yet you refuse to come to me to have life. On another occasion, Jesus said, if God were your father, that was the claim that his listeners were making. Hey, who are you, Jesus? God is our father, they were saying. And Jesus shot back and said, if God were your father, you would love me. For I have come here from God. I have not come on my own. God sent me. He said, if you love me, keep my commandments. He said, whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my father and I too will love them and show myself to them. And then the statement that all of you are familiar with, it, it's a shocking statement. Consider the audience he's talking, it's a shocking statement. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Friends, it's hard to communicate the sheer audacity of what Jesus was doing then and does today by these claims that he makes. Jesus claims to be wisdom incarnate. Jesus claims to be the one person that you and I ought to connect with religiously morning and evening. Not as a religion, but in order to have a relationship. That's how important Jesus is to you and me. You want to live a life full of wisdom? Connect to Jesus. You want to live a life of wisdom? Study Jesus' life. You want to live a life of wisdom? Then do the things that Jesus did. Love people the way Jesus does. That's where wisdom is to be found. Now, here's the thing. <laughs> Even as I say those words to you, good luck. Good luck doing that. Do that better. Do that harder. Okay? Do that gooder. <laughs> if you're like me, you know, you, you realize how impossible that is. You don't have a prayer of living a life of wisdom without morning and evening just coming back to Jesus. Jesus, here's my sin again. Jesus, here's where I failed you again. But you know what? It's a new day. There are new mercies to be had. They're to be had, Jesus, because of you. And so today, again, morning and evening, I'm gonna do the things, the rhythms, the practices that remind me of who you are, how sufficient you are, that you are the way, the truth, and the life. And whether that's reading scripture, whether that's praying, whether that's being in a small group, you know, practicing these things with others who want to become more wise, you see. That's what I'm going to commit to because I want my life to be a life of wisdom. Does that make sense? 
You know, we, uh, we push the small group thing around here uh, and we do it for a reason. We do it because we believe the best place to get wiser is to do it in concert with other people. Let them speak into your life and you speak into theirs. Study scripture together. Study truth together. And, um, you know, if you're in a place where you don't know where you stand with Jesus, get involved in that Christianity Explorer small group that's starting up. You can find out more about that online or at the table back there because that's a great place to explore, explore your questions. But here's the thing. What you all want and what I want most deeply is to live a life of wisdom. That's what everybody wants. The great difficulty is figuring out what that looks like and how you get there and where wisdom comes from. And I would say to you this morning, again, hopefully reminding you of something you already know, the place to find wisdom is in Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life. Develop patterns, develop rhythms, develop practices, whether that's being here on Sunday, being in a small group during the week, serving others in his name, develop those rhythms and those practices, those wisdom exercises, you see, that will help you get there and live a life of wisdom. Because I promise you, there you will experience satisfaction and there you will experience joy. Pray with me, would you? Father God, we, uh, we long like every other human being to live a life that's purposeful, that's satisfying, that's happy, that's full of joy. And if we're honest, God, we have to admit that, man, we go looking for that so often everywhere in every direction, but in your direction. Reminded this morning, Lord, just because of the Shema, that there was a whole group of people to whom you revealed yourself and you said, here is wisdom. There is one true living God, only one who loves you and who invites you into relationship. God, may we do everything we can by the power of your spirit and with the wisdom that you give us to move in your direction, to deepen our relationship with Jesus. As a community, God, help us to love Jesus more, serve him more, follow him more. Help us to be a people full of wisdom. This we ask in Jesus' name, amen.